0: One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising.
1: You have downloaded News Hour Extra and it is a special edition of the podcast this time because we took a trip to Cambridge and we were discussing there uh, the whole issue that's come up of uh, populism and whether there is an anti-establishment revolt going on uh, in Europe, the United States and maybe further afield as well. Elizabeth Davis is with me now. Uh, tell us why you chose this.
2: I chose it because it is uh, one of the sort of real discussion points of the day, I think. You know, you see it even if you just look at the political science books that are coming out now. You know, People like to talk a lot about a resurgence of populism, you know, whether that's uh, pejorative has kind of negative meaning um, and whether it doesn't. Um, and, you know, I certainly see it, say, even among my friends here in the UK, there is a real frustration with politics As it exists, you know, the status quo and there are increasing efforts to look elsewhere for answers. Um, You see it in the US, perhaps, with Donald Trump, where a lot of people will say, oh, the kinds of promises he's making are totally Unworkable. And
1: Bernie Sanders.
2: People said that about Bernie yeah. Sanders as well. People say that in this country about UKIP and promises that were made. And during about momentum. The, and the, about you know Jeremy yeah. Corbyn. And yeah. so you you see it on the left and on the right. Um, and it's very interesting that it doesn't seem to just be dependent on a particular country's circumstances. There does seem to be an, an international um, movement for this kind of thing.
1: Yeah, which one of our guests disagrees with, actually. So that's an interesting thing. Is, is, as yep. you'll hear, one of them, Alexander Downer from Australia, is arguing that there really isn't anything going on, which is quite quite an interesting argument. But the one thing I must say I took away from all this, doing all the reading on it, was the extent to which this isn't a left-right matter. It is an anti-elitist rebellion, if you like, or an anti-elitist feeling and trend Uh, that does seem to be strong, you know, not overwhelmingly strong, but it is gaining support and has got significant support in a lot of countries. So it is a good topic. And uh, here it is. Welcome to BBC News Hour Extra with Owen Bennett-Jones, coming this week from the Cambridge Festival of Ideas. U.S. presidential hopeful Donald Trump, Hungarian Prime Minister Victor Orban, British Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, Podemos in Spain, Syriza in Greece, the Front National in France. Do they have something in common? And if so, is it the claim to represent, to lead an anti-establishment revolt? Should we embrace these parties as representatives of those left on the margins, or write them off as populists stirring up resentments in a drive for power. Make America great again, says Donald Trump. It is such a long way from the slogan of the British Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, in the 1950s, you've never had it so good. And while in many Western countries the middle ground of politics is being squeezed elsewhere, in Russia and Turkey, for example, there's a growing anti-Western nationalism, are the politics of Putin and Erdogan, related to what's going on in the US and Europe. Everyone can agree there's a lot going on and we'll be talking about it in the programme but now let me just introduce our panel. We have Alexander Downer, Australia's High Commissioner to the UK, Foreign Minister of Australia for 12 years, I think the longest serving Foreign Minister in Australian history and we have uh, Sirio Canos Done, a member of Podemos, the Spanish political party that Uh, I think most would say have its origins in the left but insists it's neither left nor right now and it's become very quickly a real force in Spanish politics. We've got Dr Chris Bickerton from the Politics and International Studies Department at Cambridge. He wrote The European Union, A Citizen's Guide, just ahead of the uh, Brexit referendum in the UK. And we have James Graham who is one of Britain's most acclaimed political playwrights. uh, Many plays... On the National Theatre and lots of very big venues, including one, The Vote, which was uh, set in a polling station in the last election in the UK.
3: Yes, which doesn't sound very exciting, but it was, uh, it was good fun. Judy Dench was in it, so there you go. So
1: there it was, very exciting. Uh, so, now, look, lots of things are, are happening at the same time. Nationalism, populism, anti-establishment, politics. Uh, Alexander Downer, you, I think, you may resist this, but would be known as a pragmatic centrist politician. Are you out of fashion?
4: Well, I think the fashion varies from country to country, so I don't want to disabuse a a really fascinating-sounding hypothesis about the rise of anti-establishmentism or populism. But to some extent, I'd I'd like to, because I do think it varies from country to country and circumstances to circumstances. So what has happened, for example, in Spain... We have a Podemos person on our panel here... What has happened in Spain, or we've seen with the rise of Syriza in in Greece and so on, is pretty understandable when you see what happened during the Eurozone crisis and the huge pain that was imposed on many sections of that population. What you saw in the United Kingdom at the last general election was the Conservative Party winning it. In my country in Australia, the Liberal Party, which is a sort of centre-right party, it won the election outright very recently in Australia, and the Labor Party, the main opposition, Social Democratic Party, it came second by a small margin, so people mainly voted for those two parties. You know, what you're seeing in countries which are enjoying a reasonable degree of stability and prosperity is that kind of a result, and where there is great upheaval, something different. And that's what you'd expect. I don't think there's any surprise about that.
1: But doesn't that rather underplay it? I mean, in the UK, we've got the UK Independence Party, which is pretty new on the scene. We've got momentum, this movement on the left. These are new things, and they're big.
4: When I last looked at the opinion polls, the Conservative Party was, I don't know, 45% or something. The Labour Party in the high 20s, UKIP, down to about 6 or 7 The Liberal Democrats, 8% or whatever. So, you know, you do get the impression in the United Kingdom that... Some people are trying different things, such as the momentum movement within the Labour Party in an attempt to change direction within the Labour Party, but where the public are at, that arguably might be something else.
1: OK, let's bring Chris Bickerton in here. And before I ask you whether you agree with what Alexander Diner has just said, could you just talk us through Podemos and Syriza in Greece? What are they? How big are they? How important are they?
5: Well these two movements are quite considerable. They're quite different, I would say. Syriza, in many ways, is drawn from a a more traditional Greek left, which has splintered and fractured and then was reconstituted as Syriza. And Podemos is something new, I think. It's born out of the social movements that were very powerful in Spain in 2011, 2012. You might have recognized them as the indignados, the sort of the outraged ones. Um, It's become a political party. It's, uh, It's a very recent phenomenon. It has, I think, broken the dominance of the two main parties in Spain. We now have a very different party scene in Spain. It's been difficult for Spain to form a government so something is going on but to respond i think to to the first answer i don't agree um, i suppose maybe it's not so surprising that somebody who if you want to classify him as an establishment figure maybe that's right or wrong uh, to downplay what's going on if you ask the chinese they call what's happening in north america and europe the great revolt now they say this probably with quite a good dose of schadefreude it's nice to see problems elsewhere <laughs> But they call it the Great Revolt because things are happening, times are changing. Uh, Politics is different today than it was, I would say, 15, 15 or so years ago. Um, And what is different? I think what's different is that people in a number of countries are generally no longer believing what the political establishment has to say and they're losing their faith in the ability of their representatives to actually speak for them. Now, we saw this recently in the, in the UK's EU referendum, but we see it across the, the political spectrum in Europe. We see it in North America um, at the moment with the presidential election campaign. So I would say... We shouldn't downplay it. Times are changing, and I think the Chinese are probably right. This is something like a great revolt.
1: James Graham, are you, are you writing The Great Revolt as your next play?
5: That's the title for my next book, so don't steal
3: it. <laughs> OK. Uh, damn, I'll do The Great Revolt, the musical, then, and I'll give you five cents. A deal, uh, a deal. I think all plays, all future political TV dramas and, and films will basically be post-Brexit populist uh, plays. I think that it is the, the, the defining issue of our age. I have to say I have my own reservations about populism. In politics, I've got no problem with um, big radical ideas for the many big uh, problems that this world is facing. And I I welcome grassroots activism and a a more engaged electorate. I think that's been lacking and is incredibly exciting. I don't know whether populism, though, is the answer. When I think of populism, I think of um, the politics of division, I think of the politics of cult leaders like uh, uh, Nigel Farage and and Donald Trump, who reduce politics and arguments about politics. Uh, to very simplistic answers. You know, the world is full of very complicated problems that require complicated solutions and probably cross-party and cross-organisational support, and that's not the politics of populism. Populism divides people and and sets themselves in opposition to people.
1: This is a good point, perhaps, to... I mean, Mr Trump was bound to come up, and uh, this is a quote from him it's in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, so I think there's some questions whether he actually wrote it, but it certainly went under his name. Uh, and as we said, uh, the only antidote to decades of ruinous rule by a small handful of elites is a bold infusion of popular will. On every major issue affecting this country, the people are right and the governing elite are wrong. So does, that, does that sound like Spain as well?
0: No, not really. <laughs> um, I think it's incredibly simplistic, and uh, simplistic and therefore wrong. We're not anti-establishment for the sake of being anti-establishment. In fact, we're not against all elites. We're just against a particular type of political and economic elite that thought it was above the rule of law and could deal with public institutions as if they were their own private property. And I think also defining yourself by what you are against is a mistake because it doesn't tell you what you're for. And what we're for is democracy, social rights, human rights, and taking back institutions to put them at the service of ordinary people. And all of that would be missed by just dumping us in the anti-establishment label which doesn't really tell you much at all.
1: Now, when you say that, but many people would think that the common thread of Trump on the right, UKIP on the right here in the UK, and leftist movements or movements that have their origins in the left, such as yours, is that, it, that there is an attack on the establishment. Uh, I mean, I think you've got a quote, haven't you, saying that the established politicians are butlers to the big businesses and the people in charge?
0: I refer specifically to the politicians of the traditional parties that I said can see that they were no longer working for the people that they were supposed to represent. But I don't think the establishment, that's this kind of nebulous, abstract element, that help us to understand what happened. I'm referring to very specific people in very specific positions.
1: OK. Alexander Downer, uh, I think you've heard that people don't agree with your downplaying of this, uh, this phenomenon.
4: Well, that shows they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Trump. and I can only suggest this to people, I do no more than that, because I'm a high commissioner, so I'm completely neutral. What I would expect um, people to do, though, is have a look at the data and try to disaggregate the data and, and what does it tell you. So when you look at a question in the United States like do you approve or disapprove of the performance of President Barack Obama... The majority of people approve of his performance. Now, to say that Americans are all up in revolt and they hate the establishment and the whole of America is changing, I just draw your attention to the fact that the president himself's approval rating is quite good. Uh, By historic standards, consumer confidence in the United States is as high as it was in 1995 when President Ronald Reagan was um, proclaiming that it was morning in America. And um, uh, I suspect the average American, when it comes to polling day on November the 8th, I'm not, of course, wishing to express a personal view one way or the other here, I hasten to add, is going to vote for Hillary Clinton to be the president. So, I mean, uh, what has happened in the Republican Party is another question. But um, when you stop and think about it, they ran a huge number of candidates for the nomination... And I don't recall at any stage in any primary Donald Trump getting anything close to 50% of the vote of Republicans who voted in that primary. So um, I don't think there's any evidence, by the way that Donald Trump is wildly popular with mainstream America...
1: Well, well, let's be clear about it. He he has had, I just looked at the figures, actually, from August, an incredibly consistent between 42 and 44%. I mean, the whole
4: of this campaign has not shifted at all. Let's see what happens. But he is going to get the vote of partisan Republicans. And, you know, something like 90% of Americans identify themselves as as partisans and by the way I'd make one other observation there's no indication at all during this presidential campaign that there's much interest in voting for independents or alternatives
5: chris pickett the two party system is thriving i have to say if there's one thing that we've learned over the last few years is to be a little bit skeptical about the, what the polls are telling us it's very very clear that what is going on is something of considerable historical significance. So let me give you an example of how we have to probe beyond simply the the polling data. So it was mentioned that in the recent uh, general election in this country, the Tories came back in with a majority. That's true. A lot of people said, great, things are back to normal. Now, let's be very clear. Cameron came back in 2015 with a paper-thin majority so thin, in fact, that over the course of a parliament, given that MPs uh, die, I mean, there's a tendency for by-elections over the course of a parliament, he would have lost his majority. If you look at the vote share in UK politics, it's very clearly moving towards what we might classify as anti-establishment parties. That includes UKIP. It also includes the SNP. So there's a strong shift away from voting for the the two mainstream parties and a much more fragmented British political landscape. Now, the idea that Trump can be dismissed, I think is wrong. Trump is the presidential candidate in a US presidential campaign. That, that is a phenomenal development. Who would have expected that a few years ago? Okay.
1: For, so for those who think something is happening and, and maybe we can come mm-hmm. to you, Sirio. Uh, why is it happening? What is going on? Do you think?
0: Well, I think uh, since the, well, the financial crisis in 2008, exposed a huge democratic deficit in our political system. It showed how financial lobbies and transnational corporations had gradually taken away bids that used to be subject to democratic debate and managed to take it away from that democratic debate and present it as technocratic decisions, which were highly, highly ideological, austerity being a prime example. And it showed also how the two main parties, as most European countries are based on a bipartisan system, had essentially bought that and become virtually indistinguishable from each other. So I think that generates a huge discontent. And that discontent is now being channeled in two opposite directions. A progressive one, which is democratic and places the blame on those people who caused the crisis, which obviously were at the top, and are finally more regressive, authoritarian, xenophobic, and even kind of fascistoid or pre-fascist movements that blame the poorest, the dispossessed, those who cannot defend themselves, whether it's migrants, whether it's benefit seekers, whether it's unemployed.
1: Okay, James Graham, I mean, a lot of the analysis that I've read ahead of this does suggest 2008 was a turning point and that it has really deeply shifted attitudes. Do you agree? Uh,
3: I completely agree, and I'm someone who does believe that this is real. I think there are shockwaves going through modern politics and that that it is real, and um, I think there are many reasons for that. The crisis of 2008 is absolutely one of them. Certainly in this country, after the rise of new Labour, there was a centrism and there was a consensus... Uh, which we hadn't sort of seen since Margaret Thatcher broke the post-war consensus in 1979, I think we returned to a middle ground of politics that initially felt quite stable and quite safe. And then when the financial crash happened, not to mention also the the expenses scandal a couple of years prior to that, Mm -hmm. faith was lost in politicians, Uh, faith was lost in their accountability. And then worst of all, in the financial crash, faith was lost in their ability to control events. It no longer felt like anyone was in control in the main political parties. So I think something radical happened, and I think people have started to look for radical solutions uh, where I don't agree that um, these grassroots movements or even you know, the arrival of, of politics via social media and tweeting and petitions and online groups is that that is having much of a, an impact or an effect. You look at um, the mainstream political parties and I think they are absorbing some of those radical ideas or at least paying lip service to it. I was very surprised at how quickly Theresa May's government, despite her very socially liberal progressive speech when she got into power, quickly started to pay nods towards right. the UKIP voters. So, so
1: is the implication of that that you think that the, the two main parties, you know, where there are two-party systems, and there are a lot of two-party systems, that they
3: will actually survive this and absorb these new movements? I think they'll survive in some form. I think they'll mutate. Obviously, the Labour Party has mutated, but it depends how successful Jeremy Corbyn can be. Also, I have to say, and this is not a comment on uh, Jeremy Corbyn's policies, but the idea that one of the biggest contradictions for me in populism is this idea that it's anti-establishment and anti-elite. That's what it aspires to be, but it's always actually run by some of the biggest elites in the world. So the idea that Donald Trump can stand there and say... I'm going to fight for your working people and attack the elites it 's ludicrous. The same with Nigel Farage, he's a stockbroker who was privately educated. And I have to say, only slightly, it's a bit different, but you know, Jeremy Corbyn is an establishment politician. He's been in Parliament since 1983. So the idea that he also is a man of the people outside of the system is kind of false.
5: Chris Bickerton. I mean, that's, that is true in some cases, but there are some notable exceptions. In Italy, there's an important referendum that's going to be held at the beginning of December on constitutional reform it's quite possible that the Prime Minister will lose this referendum, in which case he said that he uh, may well resign. What are the opposition parties in Italy? One is the Five Star Movement, the other is the Northern League. Now, both of these are very strongly anti-establishment parties, and the Five Star Movement is run by a very funny, very entertaining comedian um, who's been hammering on against the political class for a long time now. His movement, his party, I mean, he calls it a movement, it's really a party, who is that party made up of? People such as, uh, as we have here tonight, ordinary citizens. Lepe Grillo says politicians should be out and we should bring the plumbers in. We should bring the teachers, the nurses, people who know how to run society. And that's who's actually running the party. So those are not the elites. Those are just ordinary people. James Graham, just one point I think you've made elsewhere,
1: which is interesting, is you know, we, we talk about 2008 driving some of this, but there's another factor at play, maybe, which is social media mm-hmm. and the echo chamber that allows people with strong identification on cultural issues to reinforce their views by just only hearing from people who agree with them
0: yeah uh,
3: and to me this is the most dangerous and the most depressing aspect of the rise of populism. it both reinforces it and it also is, is a, as a result of you know we, people have been speaking for years Eli Paris uh, in his book, The Filter Bubble. But it's it's true. It was demonstrated to devastating effect, I think, in the European referendum. I'm not making any comment on the choice that was made. Um, But ultimately, I think we can all agree that the quality of that debate, the quality of that conversation was historically poor. And that's what populism is responsible for. It, it it retreats into simplicities. It retreats into slogans. It puts people into camps, binary camps. And unfortunately, that's what referendums do anyway. It says either pick this or pick that. And actually, most people don't agree with either fully or this or that. But populism thrives on saying you have to pick a camp and then you have to believe it fully. It's like a religion, and you have to oppose someone else. And the Internet was built for that. So basically what happens is the algorithms on Facebook and Twitter, they only deliver back to you what you profess to be uh, the case in your opinions. And I'm convinced, I'm completely convinced, that the reason why you're seeing people at, uh, at party conventions in the US punching each other is because we've spent three years uh, with the reduction of, uh, of nuance and complexity in the conversation so that when people finally are faced with somebody who disagrees with them, the ability to have a conversation has left, and so you swing your fists or you block or you, whatever you can do on social media. And I think that is the flesh and blood that populism thrives on, and it's destroying healthy debate in this country.
1: Now, Alexander Diner, you've heard all these, uh, this analysis of what's going on and descriptions of what's going on. Has anything persuaded you that uh, you know, well, th- 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 there is well, something happening? I
4: just think, um, look, I'm not a partisan in any of this. I'm not trying to promote an anti-establishment or an establishment agenda. I'm just a, a civil servant. So what I would say to you is just look at the facts. and uh, The facts are, say, in the United Kingdom that the vote that the Conservative Party and the Labour Party combined at the last three elections has remained reasonably stable. So the suggestion that somehow new movements are emerging and the major parties are being pushed aside isn't supported by the facts. But um, it is true that political parties are always adjusting their position for the vagaries of public opinion, and public opinion is always changing because circumstances are always changing. And one of the great changes to circumstances is the rise of social media. And I completely agree. I think um, social media trivialises public issues. There's a lot to the decisions that have to be made about, you know, whether you need to reduce your budget deficit or increase it. There are a lot of issues and trade-offs that have to be made there, and it can't really just boil down to a slogan on Twitter about austerity or anti-austerity or whatever your bag is. So does that mean this is trivialising trivializing public debate to a point that's becoming almost embarrassing and is leading to the trivialisation of public discourse and public figures. It's not just reducing respect for politicians, which is becoming synonymous with many other dirty words, but with other institutions, legal institutions, the judiciary and so on. Um, Just because of a sort of sloganeering in social media, which is, yes, often... It's just intensely partisan too. And just one other thing. It is so rude. So rude. People think... In, you know, people don't agree with each other and they think they should be polite about disagreeing. But in social media, they think they can say absolutely anything. And ruder discourse I don't think I've seen in my life than I've seen on Twitter. Sirio
0: one of the reasons why I don't really like this notion of populism is because I think it's quite confusing in that it has several meanings, and then get mixed and conflated. Because to most people, populism is essentially an insult, which means kind of charismatic leader going about demagogic rhetoric that appeal to the gut instincts of a gullible majority sort of thing. And in that sense, Podemos couldn't be further away from this, and that... The reason for them a success is the fact that where the other parties infantilized voters and went on with empty slogans, we put content and substance on the table and had actual policy debates. But then there's a second meaning of populism, which is a more academic one, if, if you will, which is populism as a form of identity construction that appeals to the people as a political actor. And cuts across traditional political boundaries. In that second meaning, I guess Podemos would be considered, could be considered as populist, in that it does appeal to that wider majority of the Spanish population that wants institutions to work for ordinary people. But that doesn't tell you anything about the content of our policies or the substance of it. So I think these two understandings of populism often get mixed and produce some very confused debates. Mm-hmm.
1: Welcome back to News Hour Extra with Owen Bennett-Jones coming this week from the Cambridge Festival of Ideas. Our panel today, Alexander Downer, former Foreign Minister of Australia, Sirio Canos Done, a member of Podemos from Spain, Dr Chris Bickerton from Cambridge University, and uh, playwright James Graham. Let us move this on to the issue of whether these parties, which clearly do exist. I mean, Alexander Downer doesn't think they're as major a force as some other people. But nonetheless, they clearly do exist and are scoring high teens, low 20s percent in many, many countries. Now, is it ever going to be the case that these parties will translate their ideas into policy? Or are they basically opposition parties who are complaining about the current situation that they don't like? So how implementable? is what they're saying. And I think I should come to you, Sirio Canos, first of all, on this. You've got control now of quite a few cities and local government structures. Uh, What have you actually done that puts your ideas into practice?
0: Oh, quite a lot. Podemos is part of citizen platforms which now control the councils of Spain's major cities, Madrid, Barcelona, Valencia, and so on. All these councils have drastically reduced the municipal debt. So Madrid's debt, for instance, has gone down by a billion in a year and a bit while also increasing social spending and implementing some pretty amazing models of citizen participation in municipal politics, we've also increased foreign investment in those towns. At the same time, Podemos has been in Parliament for for a year, even though we didn't have a government. And even though we were in a really bad position because there was no official government, we've managed to pass some amazing motions. Just last week, we managed to get the Parliament to pass on untransferable and equal maternity and paternity leave uh, which is something that Spain had never had. So this idea that there is no alternative and this is what we have is rubbish. It's just a matter of political priorities, and we're showing that a different type of politics that cares for ordinary people and at the same time cares for human rights and refugees and so on is not just possible, but in fact happening.
1: So, I, mean, I guess the classic counter-example to what you're saying is Syriza in Greece, and perhaps, Chris Bickerton, perhaps you could just talk through what happened there, because it came as a very radical force. The EU sat on it, and it became many people would say, a pretty mainstream party now. So can you just talk us through what happened?
5: Uh, so, I mean, Syriza elected in, uh, in early 2015 on what was very clearly an anti-austerity platform, but it was more specific. It was also an anti-bailout platform, an anti-Troika platform. Uh, and the promise of Syriza was to tear up the existing agreement with the European Union and to negotiate something very different. And the prime vehicle for that was going to be the finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis. What happened was that These negotiations dragged on. Syriza was unable to get the deal that it wanted. Eventually, in order to try and push the Troika to to negotiate with Greece, the Greek prime minister organized a referendum. We know the result, which was that there was an overwhelming rejection of the bailout terms that were the the thing that Greeks were asked to vote on. And then a few days later, the prime minister signed off on what was actually a more constraining uh, agreement than had been the one that the Greeks had rejected. So there's a huge sentiment that that referendum was wasted. I think it's probably a little bit harsh to say, oh, well, this shows that Syriza is worthless. But I think at the end of the day, what really happened is that the Syriza government never gave any serious thought to actually what its alternatives were, which meant something like leaving the Eurozone or leaving the EU. So it was always in a bind. Um, And so I think the idea that it could have somehow transform this bailout deal into something else without actually being willing to leave the club, I think that was just unrealistic. So I think it was really Syriza's fault, to be honest. Right, so it it wasn't inevitable? It wasn't inevitable. I think there was a lot of people Mm. talking and thinking about what it would mean to leave the Eurozone. Varoufakis claims that he had a plan to do so, which he never implemented. But there was never any real debate in Greece about whether the Greek people were willing to bite the bullet or not. And I yeah. think that was the fault of the government. I
1: mean, James Graham, you could, you could sort of read that as saying, you know, that these radical platforms were put forward and then when it actually came to it, you know, Syriza wasn't convinced it could, it could carry the people given the implications of what they were talking about. So, you know, so it was unimplementable.
3: Oh, well, it sounds like the, there were some very specific conditions why that was the case, and it mm. did, I agreed. It, it never felt like it, it was inevitable. And actually, I think things that felt inevitable in in British political discourse 10 years ago uh, have now become a reality. We we have left the European Union, or I'm sorry, we will leave the European Union. When's this going out? Two years' time? Uh, (laughs) And we are asking questions we never thought we would have asked 10 years ago. For example, the very makeup of the United Kingdom itself. We probably will have a second referendum in Scotland. So big questions are being asked. And they, are, they are, having, are having consequences. I still believe that at the moment, in the next five years, we'll mainly see that through the main parties. Adopting, or at least paying lip service to some of that. I mean, the big, we haven't mentioned Bernie Sanders, actually, yet, and he, he created a huge grassroots support. Some of that was, main majority, through social media as well, and I'm not completely against the internet. We're never going to turn it off. I just think we, need, we all need to do, do better at it ourselves. But, you know, Bernie Sanders can always say that one of his main contributions to political discourse was that I think he did drag Hillary Clinton further to the left in terms of some of her social policies, in terms of her, some of her rhetoric around big corporations and Wall Street, So, in different degrees, it is happening. But I think people are angry. I think people are frightened. I think people are furious. And I think we're only going to see people, for better or for worse, major political parties trying to tap into that for either their own benefit or, hopefully, for the benefit of everyone.
1: Before before I throw this open to the audience to, to get their questions and comments, can I just ask this to anyone on the panel who wants to respond to it? I mean, it is often argued that populist movements are frightening, they're worrying that uh, they lead to bad things, and that uh, when they happen it's a a sign that uh, things are going wrong and that there are going to be major problems down the road. Uh, Does anyone agree with that?
4: No. Alexander Downer. Not quite how how I I look at these movements. Um, The point I'm trying to make tonight is if a country is very badly governed and there are huge problems or a country confronts a great crisis, as Spain did, and we've talked a bit about Greece and had a good analysis of what happened in Greece with the rise of Syriza, you will find voters looking for somewhere else to park their vote. They are not going to stick with the status quo in a situation like that when they judge that governance is really bad. And do
1: you put Brexit in that category?
4: I think that's a more complex sort of issue. I think that there's a lot of history in Britain and the European Union Um, which led to the result that occurred. So I don't think it's something simple that happened in the last few weeks or months. I think it's a process that's actually been evolving over many years. After all, Britain never signed up to Schengen or the Euro and has kept out of a lot of the European Union processes. So um, the UK has hardly been a great integrationist in the European Union at any stage. And that is the point I'm making. Mm. The situation varies from country to country and it's, it's facile to try to connect what happened in, say, Greece with what happened with the Brexit vote or what might have happened in the Indian general election. I mean, there are completely different circumstances at play in all of these cases which lead to voters voting in different ways. And just because voters choose to switch from traditional parties in a situation of crisis to some uh, minor emerging party like Podemos for example doesn't not minor mean anymore. doesn't mean that they're not minor anymore but it doesn't mean that voters are sort of communists or fascists or racists or bigots it it means that maybe the establishment isn't doing quite the job that voters expect of them
5: I mean, I think we can be too complacent. Let me just give one example. In one of the, 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 the many public meetings that were held in the course of the UK's EU referendum, and there were many of them, and some of these were very good meetings, very kind of heated meetings, where you got a sense that people were actually thinking about things for, maybe for the first time. There was one meeting where somebody was talking about the economic consequences of leaving the EU, um, and he said that the UK's GDP, compared to other European countries, other members of the Eurozone, was pretty good. Now, somebody at the back stood up and he shouted, that's your GDP, not mine. Now, if you think about it, that's a crazy thing to say. Surely that's the point about GDP figures is that they're everybody's. It's the same for everybody. It's an aggregate figure. But on the other hand, there's a, there's a deep truth in there. This person was saying, what you claim is your economic reality is not mine. It doesn't tell me anything about my life over the last 15 years. Now, these are the kind of issues we have to face. People, I think, are increasingly less willing to even believe the kind of aggregate data that our governments generate. Now, I think we can't be complacent about that. That's changing the very structure and the very fabric of political life, at least in this country.
1: Okay, let's uh, get some comments from the audience. We've got two microphones roaming around. Yeah, there's one at the back there.
2: And your name, sir? Uh, Hello. Uh, My name is Nicolás. I'm from Chile. I would like to ask you about Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn because, of course, they are of—they have been part of the establishment, but they, maybe they have been the only politicians with a consistent petition, uh, position over time. What do you think about that?
1: That their support is based on their consistency.
3: Yeah, and, and this value that people are assigning these days to this. I entirely agree that the reason why Sanders and Corbyn seem to be doing quite well amongst their own at least their own supporters is, is that they clearly do have an integrity. They've clearly stuck to their principles. I would say that Donald Trump has also been reasonably consistent in my view consistently awful but I think he, he has had a consistency to him and people see that as quite refreshing against what, the, what they feel was the modern spin politics of New Labour which was doing market research, asking people what they wanted and then bending your will to that. So I agree with that but I also think that at an age of extremes, and we are entering a new age of extremes that actually a bit of Compromise and a bit of diplomacy and a bit of moderation and mental flexibility is no bad thing either.
1: There's a question just uh, towards the back, I think.
3: Um, My name's Seanet, and I have a quick question about polling. Some people argue that Brexit happened because before polling, everyone seemed to think Brexit was not going to happen, and therefore there was a slightly reduction in turnout, which resulted in fewer non-Brexit voters turning up. Similarly there was a discussion about the US election, how people are really dis- debating between Trump and Clinton. But if you look at Utah, you've got Evan McMullin, who's polling at 25% and second favourite.
1: No, Utah is going to be an amazing, uh, amazing election this time around. But so you're basically saying that the polls can mislead and change behaviour.
3: Exactly. And so my question that follows is, is there an argument that we should be changing how we poll and whether we poll in the first place?
1: Right. And I mean, I think the French ban polling between rounds of presidential elections, don't they? Chris Pickerton.
5: Well, I mean, this discussion goes around very often um, because polls haven't been very good in recent elections. But I would just contest this idea that everyone thought that Brexit wouldn't happen. If you travel sort of an hour or so, an hour and a half north of here and speak to people, um, you'll find a number of people who will say, I never thought it wouldn't happen. I didn't meet a single person who was going to vote for Remain. Now, in a a city like Cambridge, that sounds crazy. Most people didn't meet that many people who would vote for Brexit. But the problem with polling is polling is done by human beings. Uh, The respondents are human beings. The media as a whole, I think, reflects society. And it's true that many people reporting on the UK referendum campaign, many people reporting on the US presidential campaign, have never met, don't even have in their social circle, the very people that they're writing about. Now, that creates a certain inbuilt bias. And so I think we have to accept that we may be surprised. And it may be that there are people out there that simply don't share the views that we have and we have to try and understand them rather than sort of uh, dismiss them. Does does anyone
1: on the panel think polls should be restricted, I don't know, two, three weeks, four weeks before an election?
4: Well, I think polls themselves can influence public behaviour, as the questioner is asking. I think they can. They could, for example, influence turnout. I have to say, I think, with the... Brexit referendum, the, from recollection the polls one or two polls got it right, and some of them got it a bit wrong, but they showed it was going to be very, very close, so intuitively, you'd think that would lead to a high turnout, not a low turnout. in Australia, by the way, we have compulsory voting, so uh, nothing so liberal as a, like just staying at home and watching TV all day and watching your favorite football team. you've you got to go and vote in Australia. Or you get um, fine or you get fined 50 dollars. There's a question there. Good evening. My name is John Elstor. I run a business locally. I'm furious after the Brexit vote. But what I wondered is uh, the views of the panel on whether we are now closer to proportional representation if we're all anxious to be represented
3: in government. and wondered what you would think about that. Well, it
1: is a very relevant question because if there was a more proportional system, I and mean, lots of countries have proportional systems, and that does, imp- that does empower uh, parties with 15, 20, 25% that wouldn't be empowered in a, in a system like the UK where it basically the system produces two dominant parties. So wh- what happens in Spain in terms of proportional proportionality and how has that affected Podemos?
0: Uh, we have a system which is a bit more proportional than the British one but not proportional because it still favors <coughs> majorities. No longer affects Podemos because we are above the limit where it takes votes out of view and now we also get the benefits of the majority system. But we are definitely for uh, democratic reform which makes those proportional. You'd like it, more
1: proportionality.
0: Even though we're currently benefiting from that system, we still think, by a matter of principle, that it should be more proportional. Because
1: well, there is an argument that proportionality does lead to paralysis, and that you know, the Israeli government is a classic example. It is always stuck with a very small number of uh, MPs. Uh, or members of the Knesset, uh, dominating the politics because they got a disproportionate amount of power. But
0: I think that has to do with the problem of the political culture of many countries in which we got used to majority governments doing what they please. So one of the interesting things about Spain not having a government for a long time is that it forced people to talk to each other and negotiate in a way that hadn't been done in a long time. And that think is something that we need to change. It is no matter of laws, it is a matter of political culture. That political, Politics should be more about negotiation and sitting down with the other people in Parliament, but then just applying laws as such.
1: So, so actually, it, it, it enforces coalition thinking, in a way?
0: I think it would make the whole system more democratic. OK. What do you
1: think, James Graham?
3: I would agree with that. I think we all demand and desire a more mature, sophisticated political debate. I think we have to play our, our part in that as well, though. I think we, we often pretend or say, oh, well, with that punch and duty politics of opposition or House of Commons stuff, I'm really against it. And yet we saw a lot during the coalition government between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats that there was a huge reaction against any sign of compromise from both sides, from the hard right of the Tories and, and the left of the Liberal Democrats. We, often we see as a public compromise as betrayal. So I think if we're going to have a proportional system, and I think there are real benefits to that, then we ourselves need to have a more sophisticated view of politics.
1: Hello, I'm Chris from Scotland originally, now living in Cambridge. As democracy dithers, will the despotic
4: powers of Russia and China prosper?
1: I think as a former foreign minister, you have to cope <laughs> with that. <don't> you? <laughs> <laughs> that yes, even, though, even it... though he's not allowed to have any opinions.
4: Well, I'm not sure um, that the premise of the question is entirely right. I don't think uh, democracy is is dithering. I think there is mixed leadership from around the world. Sorry, I mean the democratic world. Strong leadership from Western countries will ensure that uh, the West is able to work effectively with Russia and China to manage those relationships hopefully in the future um, better than they've been managed in the past. In relation to China, the rise of China is the single most important geopolitical issue in the world today. The rise of China is tough to manage um, and it's hard to get it right. Overall, that has gone pretty well. Overall, there are problems. As you know, there's some um, concerns about activity in the South China Sea. There are a range of other issues, of internal issues people are concerned about, but it's been managed okay. You know, sure, you're right, there are very significant problems in the relationship between the West and Russia, but I don't think it's about weakening or failing democracies. I think there's a real issue here, and it is just not a quantifiable thing it's just quality of leadership naturally enough as a diplomat I'm not going to criticize any leaders and perhaps I should wisely not praise too many either but these strong and effective or particularly effective and persuasive leaders come and go you never know I mean Hillary Clinton for example becomes the next president of the United States You know, we don't really know what she would be like, but she may be absolutely brilliant. We don't know. And until people get into positions like that, it's very hard to predict. So I think it's going to boil down to something as unscientific as the quality of the leadership of Western countries.
5: I mean, something else which I think was within that question was whether... Today the the problems that Western liberal democracies are facing suggest that there's some sort of rerun of the 1920s and 1930s where these liberal democratic regimes will give way to a more authoritarian, more fascist system. I, I don't buy it. I think what we're seeing is a crisis of party democracy. I think there's no question about it. But we're not seeing the, the roots of some new model, an authoritarian model, emerging. Uh, we're just seeing a crisis of the existing regime, but without any real sense of an alternative. I don't think pe- people look to, to China or Russia or to Turkey with a sense of, of admiration. I think we're seeing the dissolution of the relations between citizens and their governments in, in Western societies, but without any real sense of an alternative. So it's a kind of malaise, I think, rather than this transitional crisis towards something else.
0: Slightly disagree with Chris in that I think there is a big crisis of the two-party political system because the two parties became far too similar and thus undermined the alternation on which the system was based. But there's very much two alternatives emerging. One is the redemocratization of those institutions, but the other one is a much, much darker one that is heavily authoritarian and xenophobic and reminds us of the worst and most darkest ghost of recent European history. And that is something we should be very aware. Of. And I think it's highly responsible of groups like the Troika and some of the other slightly unaccountable elites that they are shutting down all democratic attempts at sorting out the situation and being incredibly lenient with those in the fog of authoritarian ones.
1: You're, you're talking about the European Union leadership,
5: basically.
0: Well, I think the European Union is a complex entity. So when I mentioned the Troika, we've had specifically to the Troika and we did to, to Greece last year. Okay.
5: My name is Sorin. I'm from Romania. And I heard you talking tonight about uh, social media being rude and so on. And I would like to ask what the establishment does to those who really challenge it, such as uh, Julian Assange and then Edward Snowden, and how they were affected by truly challenging the establishment.
1: James Graham, there are people outside of the system who are are paying, paying a price for their positions. What do you think?
3: Yes, I think that's true. I mean, I spoke to Edward Snowden during a play that I did in New York, and he's an example of someone who was user, who used modern means and the Internet to really shake things up, and I think the consequences, certainly in America, there's been legislative change in America based on what he revealed to be as we now discover based on their assessment illegal, illegal surveillance of American citizens. To me, that's an entirely different use of the internet and social media than, than what we're talking about in terms of the what was designed to open up channels of communication and present new information and different ideas to people, it's actually doing the exact opposite and it's killing conversation and it's limiting the amount of new and fresh ideas we're getting. So that's my basic point. But I agree it's not, you know, it's it's as ever, it's much more nuanced and, and difficult than 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 I'm making it out to be. You have a question on the front row.
0: Hi. Yeah, I'm finding the discussion about social media and now mainstream media a little bit of a red herring in that it's not addressing the issue of the power of mainstream media in that who controls it, who owns it, and we haven't really addressed the power of political ideology and of the political elite in what's been discussed so far. The anti-establishment... Movements are revolting against something, and we haven't really okay. kind of. L- it. Let's
1: do that as a final final thought from our panelists. And it, you know, it's an interesting question. You're saying the mainstream media is controlled by the establishment, and that that is the object of the criticism of many of these new emergent forces. So w- why don't we start? With you, James Graham, I imagine this is sort of territory you've been writing plays and political TV dramas and so on about. What, what do you think of that thought?
3: You're right, that is what we should be talking about. And I think in the play I did at the National Theatre, uh, it was so refreshing to me as someone who grew up and became politically active in the late 90s when they felt like there was a, a huge broad consensus and a death of ideas actually across the main political parties. I loved spending time in the 70s and then just uh, embracing the, the different ideologies and the different principles towards to the different crises. My only point that I would add, and someone more articulate can address your point more directly, is that I genuinely believe that in the past um, there was a greater level of um, openness and respect towards dissenting ideas between mainstream parties. Um, the language that I've observed uh, in researching the, the how. Conservative MPs and Labour MPs spoke to each other in in the House and in private meetings in the 70s and the 80s is is kind of extraordinary. I remember reading recently John Major's tribute to John Smith when John Smith died, and he he said something which moved me, which is strange for John Major, but he moved me by saying that uh, he, he was always my opponent, but he was never my enemy. That's different now. That's different now if you look at Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. That's different now if you look at Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May. And whilst I welcome the return to big ideas and ideologies, I mourn the loss of a, a respect and a dignity and an appreciation towards one's opponents instead of treating them like their they're enemies.
5: Chris Pickerton. I, mean, I think this goes to the fundamental problem of populism, which is that however you want to cut the definition and there are endless discussions about how to define it, at the end of the day, populism is a form of politics that pits the morally corrupt elite against the virtuous people that is what populism is now what you don't have there is a debate about what's the best way to run society you don't have a debate about whether we should have a more liberal a freer society whether we should spend more in something or spend less than something else you don't have a debate about substance so if you evacuate from politics substantive questions about how to enjoy the good life, how to organise society, you're going to have exactly what we just heard, which is this kind of visceral, sort of enemy-based politics. And that is what we have with populism. So, uh, but it's around. We have to think about how to deal with it. But, the, uh, but that's the, the very essence of populism. It's the people versus th- the elites. I, th-
1: I think we're reaching a point of agreement here. And uh, Alexander Downer, you, you, you also have identified this uh, high degree of partisanship.
4: And trivialisation of public debate and public ideas, particularly in the media and in social media, the trivialisation is a problem, the denigration of individuals just on the basis of the views they hold, denigration which which emanates from a sort of intense partisanship, sloganeering, and not enough careful examination of, you don't have to agree with people, but most people come to their points of view with a reasonable degree of goodwill. You know, if you want to nationalise the railways, you probably don't want to do that out of ill will and want everybody to have a terrible time on trains or you want to privatise them and ditto, you know. You just have a view about how it might be best to run a railway system. Um, it doesn't seem that that should attract the degree of denigration, abuse and, and personal insult that uh, public debate seems to promote. Syria.
0: In, in that case, if we're going for those definitions of populism, I think for the most definitely isn't, because what we've done is precisely the opposite. We've brought this amazing substance and content and debate about specific policies and Spanish politics. Now, it's so much more rich and interesting because of the debates being far more substantial. The media in Spain are definitely controlled by a very specific minority of people, and there's no, really independ- there's no real independence of the media, and that is a problem for new voices that want to get heard. But the the good news on this is that Podemos, despite having all kind of the media bosses against us and being the object of a really horrible, nasty media campaign. We still made it to all the main debates for the simple reason that if there was somebody on Podemos on that debate, more people would to it because they were the one, we were the ones bringing in the content, bringing in the ideas, bringing in the new ways of looking at things. So there's ways you can get over that media bias by just being far better than everybody else. And that's why I think bringing content to those debates and going beyond the empty slogans is what can make these democratic movements flourish.
1: Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you, uh, Alexander Downer, Sirio Canostone, Chris Biggerton and James Graham. Uh, Thank you to our audience. If you want to hear the programme again you can do that go to news hour extra bbc news hour extra you can get the podcast the bbc news hour extra podcast and you can uh, communicate to us newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk to let us know what you think of the programme and we do try and respond to all the messages we get but uh, that's it for this edition of news hour extra thanks very much for listening and from the cambridge festival of ideas goodbye